So I know it's Valentine's Day. That's not an official church holiday, however, so I won't be preaching on romantic love. It's a Hallmark and Hershey's holiday, but five years ago on Valentine's Day, we had another Valentine's Sunday five years ago, and you can go back and check your notes on that message that most of you were here and heard, so, so check, on that, check on that one. But so you don't go home empty today, I want to share with you the most, uh, the most romantic thing that I ever heard doing premarital counseling. Done a lot of premarital counseling, done a lot of weddings in my lifetime, and, and, and this one stands out. I was working with a couple named Lance and Sarah, and, and one of the early questions I asked them was just about their age, one of those, you know, things you ask right up front, how old are you? And, and Lance answered the question. He said he was 26, and his fiancee Sarah was 25, and, and then he added that uh, he was waiting for her to turn 25 before he could marry her. And like you, I was curious as to why that would be a thing, and so I inquired, and Lance noted that at 25, a young lady gets a discount on her car insurance. <laughs> that Lance was one smart cookie. You young men, mark, mark that one down. But Lance was actually, in fact, a romantic guy. At the wedding, he played a song for his wife on his guitar, and he sang it, and it was a song that he wrote precisely for her and their wedding. It was really very sweet. And as he sang it, the bride noticeably broke down and began to cry, at which point Lance held up a sign that said, I knew she would cry. <laughs> so he got his bride to laugh and to cry, which that's a win-win, guys. All right, back to Acts. Part 17 today of our Themes from Acts. We have only one more theme to go after today. Today's Themes from Acts is... The Scriptures Fulfilled. The Scriptures Fulfilled. And it, I couldn't come up with a title that made this sound particularly exciting, but I, I think it's a wonderful study, and I hope you agree in a half hour. As you read Luke's history of the early church, you'll be impressed, if you pay attention, with how thoroughly almost every part of it is linked to the Old Testament. It's truly all over, from the first chapter to the last chapter. So let's dig in. Acts chapter 1. Jesus, in Acts 1, speaks His final word to His men, and then He ascends to heaven. Uh, back in Jerusalem, the disciples then gather when their leader, Simon Peter, makes his first recorded address as the leader of the church. And what does He say? Acts 1, 16, brethren, the Scripture, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. So from the very start, the apostles connected everything that was happening around them. Excuse me, my microphone is falling off of my ear. There we go. They connected everything that was happening around them back to the Old Testament Scriptures. Peter indicates that the betrayal and death of Judas Iscariot was foretold in the Old Testament Scriptures. And then he quotes from two Psalms. In verse 20, Peter continued, this was written in the book of Psalms where it says, let his home become desolate with no one living in it. It also says, let someone else take his position. Now, I find that fascinating. He provides a scriptural defense of replacing Judas Iscariot, which they proceeded to do. Now, that is chapter 1. On now to chapter 2, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. His sermon starts in verse 14. It ends in verse 36. And of the 23 verses in his sermon, 11 of them are direct quotes from the Old Testament. You think, I have a lot of Scripture in my sermons? Read the sermons in Acts. 
Nearly half of the words come straight from the Hebrew Scriptures. Peter starts out quoting Joel about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then he quotes from Psalm 16 about the promised resurrection of the Christ. In verse 30, he refers to the covenant of David from 2 Samuel 7. And then he ends with a reference to Psalm 110, which is the most oft-quoted Scripture of the Old Testament in the New Testament. The first gospel sermon is built on the back of four passages from the Old Testament Word of God. So what's the point? The point is that the advance of the gospel, the rolling out of the Word of Jesus by the apostles, had a distinctly Old Testament context to it. They preached Jesus, but their text was the Old Testament Scriptures. And we're just getting started. We've seen this already in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And the chapter that comes next would be chapter 3. Very good. Peter, again, his second sermon after the miracle, uh, the healing of the lame man at the beautiful gate. Verse 12, Peter saw his opportunity and addressed the crowd. People of Israel, he said, what is so surprising about this and why stare at us as though we had made this man walk by our own power or godliness for it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We sang that, by the way. The God of Abraham praise. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of our ancestors who has brought glory to his servant Jesus by doing this. Now here, Peter doesn't quote Scripture, but what does he do? He connects the miracle they just saw there in Jerusalem to what God had been doing for centuries and how God called out Abraham to be his, and, and he refers to all the Jewish forefathers. You see, he is putting the Jesus story into the broader context of redemptive history, which goes way, way back in time. He wants them to see that what is happening now, meaning mid-first century, is in God's plan and on his timetable. And then he goes on in verse 18. The things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. And so he's announcing the age of fulfillment. They had waited for a Messiah. They had heard of him. They have read of him. Peter is saying, okay, we are seeing the promises come to life before our very eyes, and it is awesome. But Peter had done Three verses later, he again refers to the prophets of old, and he says in verse 22, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Direct quote from Deuteronomy 18. And at this point, you're saying, Pastor, is there more? Thank you. And there is, verse 23. It will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And also Deuteronomy 18, 24, and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham and your offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So that's from Genesis. But Peter says that all the prophets spoke about Jesus and the day of good news. When you get to chapter 4, you find Peter quoting Psalm 118 before the high priest. When he prays later in chapter 4, he quotes from Exodus, he quotes from Nehemiah, he quotes from the Psalms. Pretty impressive for a fisherman, isn't it? But oh yeah, he did spend those three years uh, hanging out with Jesus, didn't he? You get the sense that maybe in those three years they did some Bible study together. 
You figure they might have done some of that. Peter did not write these out like I do on a computer. These passages that he quotes just bubbled up from within him. The Holy Spirit helped, I'm sure, but I believe also that he knew the Word of God. So, brothers and sisters, there's just no way around this fact. Christianity is a religion of the book. It's a religion of the book. Even before the printing press, they read it, they heard it, they learned it. There was no version app to help them out, but the apostles were men of the Word to a degree that I find rather challenging and inspiring. It's no surprise that an honest assessment of human history will show that the church of Jesus Christ, far more than any other institution or influence, has promoted literacy throughout the entire world. And the church continues in earnest to translate the Scriptures into the heart language of those few remaining tribes and peoples who don't have it in their heart language. Why do we do all of that? We are a people of the book. We believe that our God has spoken in His Word. And clearly, this is what Peter believed, because clearly, this is what his Lord and Savior also believed. But it goes beyond Peter. He is just the gospel preacher in the early portions of Acts. You go now to Acts chapter 7, where we get a sermon by Stephen. Stephen only got to preach one sermon, and he didn't even get to finish that one. But it is fascinating to read it. His sermon runs for 52 verses, and about half of them are direct quotes from the Hebrew Scriptures. Just like Peter's. Just like Peter's. Just, just, just read it. Most of them were from the Pentateuch, but he also goes on to quote from Amos and Joshua and the Psalms and Isaiah. Isaiah shows up again, you know, in chapter 8 when Philip meets the eunuch from Ethiopia who was reading the book of Isaiah just as Philip approaches him, verse 53, chapter 8. Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. So again, Jesus is the point and the purpose of the sermon, but the text is the Old Testament always. So Peter, Stephen, Philip, we can't leave out Paul. Paul, we know, what was his background? He was an Old Testament scholar. The longest sermon by Paul that we have in the book of Acts is in chapter 13. Guess what we find? Listen, you go from church to church nowadays. Seriously, you go from church to church nowadays, and you are likely to hear some very different messages. But in the book of Acts, they're all working from the same script, the same gospel, really the same approach, which involved a whole lot of Old Testament. Here, chapter 13, verse 16. Paul stood, lifted his hand to quiet them, and started speaking. Men of Israel, he said, and you God-fearing Gentiles, listen to me. The God of this nation of Israel chose our ancestors, made them multiply and grow strong during their, their stay in Egypt. Then with a powerful arm, he led them out of their slavery. Where does Paul start his gospel message? Where does he start? Back in Genesis and in Exodus, he then goes on to speak of the kings of Israel, 
Saul and then David. He speaks of John the Baptist, and then he gets to Jesus, crucified, buried, risen. He goes on to quote from Psalm 110, from uh, Isaiah 55, from Psalm 16. He calls his hearers to faith in Jesus so that their sins would be forgiven, and then he ends with a quote from the prophet Habakkuk. The following Sabbath, Paul's text is from Isaiah 42, and verse 47 says this, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Everything goes back to the Scriptures, the Jesus story, the coming of the Spirit, the expansion of the church into Gentile territory. It was all there in the Old Testament. And the preachers in Acts are careful to help us see that. You've seen enough for now, I guess, but, well, let's skip over to the end of the book, Acts chapter 28, the last chapter. Paul is finally now in Rome. He's under house arrest. From there, he meets with the Jewish leadership in Rome, and he speaks Christ to them. Apparently, a few were convinced by Paul, but most of them were not. So, Paul responds by quoting Scripture, Isaiah 6, to be precise, Verses 26 of this chapter, I guess verse, yeah. Go and say to this people, when you hear what I say, you will not understand. When you see what I do, you will not comprehend. For the hearts of these people are hardened, and their eyes cannot hear, and they have closed their eyes, so their eyes cannot see, and their ears cannot hear, and their hearts cannot understand, and they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. All of that from Isaiah 6. That's what God said to Isaiah at the end of that great chapter. So, let's consider how all this how does this relate to us now? Two things come to mind. One is, as we live and as we read the Word of God, we should remember the relationship that exists between the Old Testament kingdom of God and the New Testament kingdom of God. Recently, a, uh, a man came to our church and afterward wrote me an email. And in the email, he asked me one question. He wanted to know if I believed in replacement theology. Replacement theology. I hear this term fairly often. Always, always, say it with me, always in a negative or with a negative slant. Fact is, nobody claims to be on the side of replacement theology Whatever it is, I'm sure with 7 billion people on the planet, there's probably somebody that adheres to it and claims to, but I know of no one. I've never heard of anybody espousing this particular view, but curiously, I read constantly people arguing against it and attacking it. Many books have been written about replacement theology. All of them are opposed. Strange, isn't it? It's sort of like the way we use the word extremist in our political discourse. Anybody here an extremist? Is there an extremist? <laughs> Tim Holt's an extremist, so there you go. Uh, nobody claims to be an extremist, but we all talk about how much we're against it, but nobody wears the title. Well, what someone means when they ask about replacement theology is whether or not I believe that the church has replaced Israel. Got that? Has the church replaced Israel? And the short answer to that is no, but the question deserves more. What we see in the sermons of Acts is that Peter and Stephen and Philip all saw 
the birth of the church as a continuation of and development of the kingdom of God, which for centuries had found its focus among the Jewish nation. Clearly, what was happening with Jesus and the Holy Spirit had its roots with Abraham, with Moses, with David. It was spoken of by the prophets. They watched this new thing coming into being and said, this new thing is related to an old thing. How so? Well, it is the next critical stage in redemptive history, which started back in Genesis 12 with Father Abraham. As such, it will bring to pass some things that are new, and it will retain some things that are old. As a result, we do not jettison our roots in Hebrew history and faith, we do not, but we do not bind ourselves to every aspect of Hebrew religion. Some new things have come. This was not easy for the early church to navigate. No, no. This was their big, their first big theological dispute. In Acts 15, we read of the first major church council, which came together to figure out how Jewish Gentile converts had to become. Let's take a quick look at Acts 15. The elders of the church in Jerusalem are there. Some had come from Antioch as well maybe from some other places, but those are the two we know of. All the founding fathers are there. I mean, wow, you want to be at a good event. Peter's there. James is there. John is there. Uh, Barnabas is there. Paul is there. How cool it would have been to be at that particular uh, assembly, you know, have your New Testament for all these guys to sign, something like that. The main issue that they were dealing with is how do we assimilate these Gentiles into this new thing that God is doing? So Peter gives a speech. No surprise there. Peter's always giving speeches. Acts 5 verse 7, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and thank God, you know, Peter held his tongue for a while, apparently. Peter stood up and said to them, brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did us also. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are? Very Jewish Peter arguing that Gentiles don't have to go through the Jewish door before they come in the Christian door. They don't have to follow the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament either. Paul and Barnabas, they then give a report from the mission field, and then we read a speech by James. Again, that would have been an awesome assembly to be at, right? James, this is not, this is James the brother of Jesus. Uh, James the brother of John had already been martyred for his faith. This is uh, the James regarded by many as the pastor of the church in Jerusalem by this time. And here's his speech, and it's an important one for us to grasp. What is the under proper understanding of the Old Testament and its relationship to the New? Verse 13, when they had finished, James stood and said, brothers, listen to me. Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for himself. And this conversion of Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted, as it is written, Afterward I will return and restore the fallen house of David. We slow down. 
This conversion of the Gentiles is what? Exactly what the prophets predicted. As it is written, afterward I will return and restore the fallen house of David. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it so that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles, <coughs> all those I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken, He who made known these things so long ago. Those final lines, by the way, come from the ninth chapter of the prophet Amos. An Old Testament quote to make what point? What is James trying to get across here? He is saying the promise to rebuild the dynasty of David, to give David a son who would sit on the throne of Israel to reign forever and ever, was being fulfilled in their day through the conversion and inclusion of Gentiles. Ha! <laughs> this, this is monumental, really. It is also entirely consistent with what Paul says in Romans and Galatians about the promises to Abraham, applying to anyone and everyone who has faith in Jesus. There you have it. You can read it yourself. The Abrahamic promises and the Davidic promises are fulfilled in the church, which is essentially the Israel of God. This is clearly how Paul saw it. This is how James saw it and how the church as a whole came to see it. So is this replacement theology? Does the church replace Israel? Think of it this way. Did Ben the man replace Ben the boy? Huh? Now we don't, uh, we don't speak or think like that, do we? Ben the man is just the fuller representation of Ben the boy. Both are truly Ben, but at different stages of development. Ben the boy did not cease to exist. He simply grew into something more wonderful and more powerful. <laughs> and all of this by sovereign grace. Praise his holy name. Where are you? Come on, guys. Come on. Praise His holy name. All right. One definite takeaway for us today. To love and learn the Scriptures. Love and learn the Scriptures. I'm inspired by the apostles and how the Word of God just flowed out of them. When they got cut, they bled the Scriptures. It was that much a part of them. And they were better for it. Clearly, they saw, they saw it as the Word of God. They show us a high view of the Bible, Old or New Covenant. We are people of the book. That does not change. That Word of God is what builds our faith. Paul said faith comes from hearing and our attentiveness to His Word. Bible study, which includes the Old Testament, also equips us to be evangelists and to be apologists, we can present our faith, we can defend our faith. When we know the Scriptures in the macro, that is the big picture, and in the micro, memorizing specific verses maybe, we get this too from Paul. Remember how Paul did missions? Acts 17, 2, according to Paul's custom, 
he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And he repeated this behavior from city to city, and the Word of Life finally made its way all the way to us here in Pittsburgh. The Bible was Paul's weapon of spiritual warfare. He wielded its truth to great effect. Acts 18, verse 28, he refuted the Jews with powerful arguments in public debate using the Scriptures. He explained to them that Jesus was the Messiah. Perhaps you have an unbelieving friend. How do you reach that person? One way is to invite that person into a study of the Scriptures with you. Soon, soon, as we watch the COVID climate, we hope to initiate another alpha course, which provides a particular platform to invite an unbelieving friend into a study of Scripture. But you could also just ask somebody to meet with you and go through a single chapter of the Gospel of John once a week. And if you train yourself, you can show them how the Gospels tell of a Jesus who fulfilled what was spoken in the earlier Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. And when you see this, when you see part of what we see today, it builds your faith, and sometimes it sparks faith in others. Next Sunday, we start our final theme from the book of Acts, which theme is persecution. But let's end today in the last chapter with Paul in Rome under house arrest. Some of the local Jewish leaders came to see the famous prisoner. Acts 28, verse 23, <clears throat> when they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. Jesus was the subject. The text was the Old Testament Scriptures. We see it from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 28. We see it in the preaching of Peter. We see it in the preaching of Stephen. We see it in the preaching of Paul. So now then, may the Word of Christ richly dwell in you and among us. Consider as we close, if there is a commitment to God that you, that God is calling you to make by His Spirit this morning, to be more of a man, more of a woman of the book, because you are a man, you are a woman of the Christ. As we go to prayer, ask the Lord if a renewed commitment to personal study, whether it's group or personal or individual study or, or Bible memory, whatever it may be, if something of that nature would be pleasing to Him and helpful to you. Let's pray. So, Blessed Father, we pray and invite you to come now and speak to our hearts about how we can leave here today with a decision, with a choice that will shape our future. Pray that you move in some of our young people, especially on this point, Lord they would commit themselves to being the kind of vigorous students of your word. 
but Scripture would spill out of their, out of their, out of their mouth and fill their hearts. We thank you, Lord, for the example of these brothers. We know they got this from you. So, Father, may we grow more and more to be people of the book because we know and believe that that book is your sweet and wonderful, wise and precious word that by it we and others find life. Give us insight, Lord, how we can assist those who have not loved your book, how we can draw them in, develop their appetite, and then, Lord, lead them to a knowledge of the truth through the Scriptures. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.